First Corinthians chapter one. First Corinthians chapter one. First Corinthians chapter one. I First Corinthians chapter one. We're gonna look at verse twenty-three tonight. But we preach Christ crucified under the Jews a stumbling block and under the Greeks foolishness. Uh, let's pick it up by verse twenty-one and see the context here. For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. For the Jews require a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, under the Jews a stumbling block, and under the Greeks foolishness. But unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Father, thank you again for your word. You've inspired it and preserved it and caused it to be translated in such a way that we have the words um, you intended for us to have. And we're grateful for that confidence we can have in your word. And I thank you for gathering us tonight. I thank you for the number of folks that have been able to join us. I pray that you would guide us in our thinking. Holy Spirit, that we claim your promise that where two or three are gathered in your name, there you are in the midst of them. And we pray that you would lead us as in our thinking. Show us what the meaning of this passage is and then uh, also, its application to our lives. Father, we thank you for your gift, your son, Jesus Christ, who died in our place, who suffered the penalty for our sins, who endured the pain and the torture to pay the penalty that we could never pay. And then, Lord, we praise you because you brought him back to life and he rose again and he sits even now on your right hand and is preparing a place for us and We look forward to that day when he comes to receive us unto himself. Father, we want that day to come quickly. But we trust that until that day comes, you'll lead us and guide us so that we are strengthened for this battle that we are in. And we pray these things this evening in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. I want to do two things with tonight's message. Um, One of the things that I am convinced we need to do as a church, as Elmira Baptist Church, is we need to see these times when we meet as training exercises. How many of you are in the military? How many of you uh, never get tired of the training you do in the military? You seem to do the same things over and over and over until they become second nature. And that's the whole point. As a coach, as a basketball coach, we'd run a drill and these guys would get tired of the drill and I'd say, listen, we're not going to quit running the drill until you get it right. Because the whole point is in a game, you're going to be so amped up on adrenaline, you won't even know what to do. So your body's going to revert to just what it feels like doing. I want to teach your body to feel like doing the right thing on the basketball court. And you know, church is a lot like that. Our meetings are a lot like that. Number one, we worship the Lord. And that must be first. Secondly, we're training. We're preparing. And so sometimes you may feel like, well, you know, pastor has a few major themes that he preaches on. And I'll I'll, I'll try to broaden those as I can. But I want to make sure we're doing the important things right. The basic things right. So that we can be Christians in a a world that is increasingly uh, anti-Christian. Works against what God wants us to do. I grew up in the 70s and the 80s, and if you were alive during that time, you remember there were a lot of people who were good moral people. I'm not saying they were Christians, because nobody's saved by their works. But they were good moral people. They respected the Word of God. They thought that the Ten Commandments were right, that evil was wrong. 
that's not the way it is anymore. We've got a, got a culture that has turned things upside down, where evil is called good and good is called evil, and what's right is called wrong, and what's wrong is called right all too often. And if we're going to live in that type of culture, we have to think biblically. We've got to, got to think the same way that God thinks. We have to feel the same way that God feels. So this evening, I want to talk about uh, preaching Christ as the title of the message is, We Preach Christ. And let's start with the obstacles, the problems to preaching Christ that are mentioned in this passage. And the first is that the Jews are uh, stumble over this idea of Christ because they are seeking a sign. They're not just seeking a sign like, oh, I want to see something interesting. They're seeking a sign that reveals power, that reveals authority. See in verse 22, for the Jews require a sign and then skip down to verse 24, but unto them which are called both Jews and Greeks Christ, the power of God. That's the corresponding to the sign that they're seeking in verse 22. Jesus Christ is the sign. He is the power of God. They're seeking a sign. Now I'm going to by analogy, I'm going to make an application from that meaning, and I want uh, you to understand, for, for us, the Jews represent religious people. There are still religious people out there, by the way. You probably work with some who consider themselves religious. I'm not saying necessarily Christian religion, but they're religious people. And oftentimes, Jesus Christ doesn't help them get to salvation. He's actually a stumbling block, not because there's anything wrong with our Savior, but because there's something wrong with the way of their way of thinking. The second group that we see here is the Greeks. To the Greeks, Jesus is foolishness because the Greeks are seeking after wisdom. And then notice again, verse 22, the Greeks seek after wisdom. Skip down to verse 24, but unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the wisdom of God. And by analogy, let's make an application here to people who are scientific, they, they believe in science. Do you realize that for people who think that they're being scientific, they're really being materialistic. That is, they don't believe in anything that they cannot experience with their touch, with their eyes, with their hearing. They can't taste it, although most people aren't putting things in their mouths anymore. Little kids do that, but adults don't do that. If they can't experience it with their five senses, they don't believe it's real. Those people are materialistic. Unfortunately, today in our society, most Americans, uh, hopefully you don't, but most Americans equate materialism with science. Sci By the way, science and the Bible are, go hand in hand. You realize that many of the early scientists in the Western tradition, they were Christians who believed in a creator God. And the only reason that they were interested in science, the only reason they were pursuing knowledge is because they believed that God... The God of the Bible is a God of order, and because he created things, it must be orderly. In centuries past, of course, there's always been thunder and lightning. But you remember, at some point in human history, we attributed it. We attributed it. I'm going to say this again. We said thunder and lightning was because gods were fighting up in the skies, right? That's not it at all. There's, there is an observable reason why lightning jumps from the ground to the clouds. By the way, you realize lightning begins in the ground, goes up to the clouds. Sometimes there's lightning in between clouds. And that burst of energy superheats the air, and that's why we hear thunder. 
The reason we discovered that is because there were Christians who believed that the God who created everything is a God of order. And these things didn't just happen on accident. They weren't just gods fighting up in the skies. There was a logical explanation. Kurt can tell you far more about astronomers who, because they were Christians, believed that the stars and the planets moved in an orderly fashion. And they were predictable. And they were predictable because it was a God of order. So there's nothing wrong with science in the Bible. The problem is people today think science means materialism. There can be no God in the equation. They've got to explain everything with their five senses. And frankly, that is an impossibility. So they're going to stumble over this idea of Jesus Christ. So then Jesus Christ is foolishness because what does he have to do with anything? They're not going to experience Jesus Christ with their eyes or with their ears or with their touch. They can't experience him. And so they say, well, it doesn't matter to me. Yeah, maybe he was a person in, in past history. In fact, they may even admit that he rose from the dead, although usually they, they stumble at that too. But what does he have to do with me today? I was talking with about salvation, Jesus Christ, with someone recently. And that was his, his um, uh, approach. By the way, he was very friendly, very kind, sort of in that patronizing way. Yeah, if you want to believe that, you go ahead. If that works for you, fine. But don't tell me about it. I've got a better way of understanding the world. Well, if we take God out of the equation, it's not a better way of understanding the world. Let me go backwards now to the, the Jew here, the religious person. Often religious people, they stumble over Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ shows us that we can't do it ourselves. Why did Jesus, I often ask people this question as we're, especially if I'm dealing with a religious person, why did Jesus Christ have to die? And they give me various answers. Well, uh, it was a symbol of, of, of uh, his fight against the oppression of the Romans. Or he showed us how to live a moral life and how to, how to experience injustice and overcome injustice. Well, those things may be subsidiary, but the main reason that Jesus Christ died, and we're going to see this here in a minute in the gospel, is because you and I are sinners. And there's a just God who requires a payment for sin. He must punish sin. And so there's Jesus Christ taking my punishment for sin. That's why Jesus had to die. But religious people stumble over that because, believe it or not, religious people, what they want is they want to be in control. The religious people of Jesus' day, the Jews that Jesus was dealing with, those religious people, they wanted a triumphant leader. Someone who was going to come in and be the king and who was going to be the general and he was going to get rid of the hated Romans. And if you read through the Gospels again and again, you'll see the Pharisees and the chief priests trying to manipulate Jesus to do what they want him to do. Use him as a tool, as a pawn in their plan. Now, of course, that doesn't work because Jesus is, is very God and he's not going to be manipulated by anyone. But if you'll watch carefully how religious people act today, many of them are still trying to manipulate God to do what they want God to do. And for them, Jesus Christ is a stumbling block because Jesus Christ is a reminder when we understand who he is and we did it on the cross. And that's what we remember tonight as we uh, look at the Lord's, uh, uh, as we observe and, and remember the Lord's Supper. We understand we can't do it. We can't manipulate God. There, there is nothing to do that. So you're going to meet religious people. They're going to stumble at Jesus Christ. 
because they want to earn salvation. They really do. They want to believe that they can do enough good things or they can do the right rituals and they can earn what only Jesus Christ, what Jesus Christ only gives us as a gift. And you're going to meet scientific people. They're really materialistic people who are going to think Jesus Christ is foolish and so they're going to stumble over it. They're seeking a wisdom that they're never going to find because the only true wisdom comes from God. On the other hand, we're not interested in scientific explanations without God. We're not interested in religious explanations without the cross. We preach Christ. Now, the word preach is a good one. To publicize, to proclaim. You've certainly heard the example of a town crier. This was in the days before radio and television and podcasts and and Twitter and all this other stuff we use to get information out. So if you wanted to get information out, you would send somebody into the city square, into a public area, and he would literally shout out whatever news you wanted to proclaim. And that's what this, where this word preach comes from, to, to shout out that news. So keep that in mind as we think about what that means for us. Well, first of all, it means that the messenger is identifiable. If you've got a town crier, he's out shouting in a public place. Everyone knows who is giving out the news. There's really no anonymity in this. Now, we're really, to me, we've gone really overboard with this whole privacy thing. We want to be private. I'm not talking about government and and interfering in our affairs. I'm talking about individuals wanting to be private. And we don't want anyone to know who we are when we complain or when we put news out there. If you're going to preach the gospel, guess what? People are going to know who you are. How do you preach the gospel anonymously? I know people are really big about social media and trying to use the internet to get the gospel out, and I'm not saying there's no way to do that. But I would be curious to know how many of us were saved because we read somebody's blog. Or we saw a Twitter post, and that brought us to Christ. My guess is just about every person in here had, a, had some sort of personal contact with someone who gave them the gospel. Now, you may have come to faith in Jesus Christ at another time when that person was no longer around, but it was that person preaching the gospel to you that brought you to faith in Jesus Christ. And if we're going to preach Christ, we're going to have to be bold about it. We're going to have to not worry that people are going to know, hey, I'm a Christian and I preach Christ. Now, I, I know why this is so troublesome for us. I know why it's so troublesome for me. Because I know that as soon as people know that I'm a Christian and I preach Christ, they're going to hold me to a higher standard, aren't they? They're going to expect me to be honest. They're going to expect me to be kind. And they're going to expect me to turn the other cheek. And so sometimes it's easier just not, not to be the Christian in the room and not take that kind of abuse. Now, let me encourage you tonight that the only way we're going to live a Christian life, regardless of whether we identify as a Christian or not, but the only way we can live the Christian life, the only way we're going to be honest, kind, able to turn the other cheek, is if we're walking in the Spirit and we're living in God's grace. You, you can, I can't live the Christian life in my own strength. You can't either. So yes, they're going to have unreasonable expectations, but Let's not let that bother us. Let's walk in the Spirit. Let's live by the grace of God. And let's be bold in identifying I'm a Christian and I'm here to preach the gospel. I, I, just as a just illustration works for me, uh, frankly, one of the hindrances, not hindrances, one of the um, obstacles I have to overcome when I'm out door knocking is what is the person on the other side of the door going to think of me? 
Well, I know what they're going to think of me. They're going to think, here's a Christian wacko out here waking me up at 11 o'clock in the morning. And I think you shouldn't be asleep at 11 o'clock on a Saturday morning. We've, we've got to get over this. People will know I'm a Christian if I preach the gospel. Of course they'll know you're a Christian. I remember sitting on a plane next to a guy decades ago now, sitting on a plane, trying to witness to him. And all he wanted to talk about was some, I'm going to use the word stick. I, I don't know what else, how else to describe it. Some stick he had found that enabled him to overcome leg cramps so that he could be a better runner. Now, who talks about sticks that help people overcome leg cramps? People who are a committed runner. Th that was the most important thing in his life, was the ability to run and run long distances. What's the most important thing in my life? Is it Jesus Christ? Then I should get past the, well, what will people think of me? Because it doesn't really matter. We've got to preach Christ and be bold about it. And yes, people are going to identify us as Christians. They're going to say, that person always wants to talk about Jesus. What better way can we be known at work and in our neighborhood than as the Christian in the neighborhood? You've probably had people come to you in your neighborhood. If you've lived where you are any length of time, you've probably had somebody come to you from a couple doors down. I've had this happen to me. Knock on your door and say, would you pray for me about? Why did they come to you? Why don't they call, you know, into the local TV show? Because they know that you are a Christian and that if, if they have any hope of getting in touch with God, it's because they need somebody. Now, the good news is you can tell them, listen, you can talk to God directly and give them the gospel. But if nobody's ever come to you and said, hey, would you pray for me? Let me ask you, if you've been there any length of time, why not? Don't they know you're a Christian on the job site? They come to you, hey, pray for me. Why? Now, often, they, they, they may pull you away from everyone else. They don't want everyone else to know they're going to the Christian guy to ask for prayer. But they ought to know that we're Christians, that we're personally identifiable as we're preaching the gospel. There's no way to anonymously preach the gospel. The second thing about preaching is it has to be a clear message. The town crier doesn't get up there and go, <laughs> What does that mean? Why is he yelling if we don't understand? We need to make sure that when we're, we're preaching the gospel, that we're preaching a, a clear message. Now, the simplest explanation of the gospel in the Bible, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're in 1 Corinthians 1, so you don't even have to switch books. Go to 1 Corinthians 15. And we're going to look at verses 1, 2, 3, and 4. 3 and 4 are the key, but I want you to see the gospels here in in, in, uh, by reading verses 1 and 2. So 1 Corinthians 15, 1, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also you have received, and wherein ye stand, by which also you are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. So here's the gospel, verse 3, For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. There's a lot in there that we can take a whole message to unpack it, but let me draw your attention to four things. I'm going to do this slightly out of order. The first thing I want you to notice in there is how that Christ died for our sins. Nobody is ever going to get saved unless they understand that they're a sinner and the dreadful penalty of sin. 
I think sometimes we can almost make it too easy for people and just sort of gloss over that part. And hey, do you want to believe in Jesus? Sure, pray with me. Okay, but why are they believing in Jesus? Why did Christ die according to this passage? For our sins. So as you're preaching the gospel, make sure people understand that man is a sinner. It's, it's, it's really simple. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned, come short of the glory of God. Romans 3.10, there is none righteous, no, not one. We're all sinners. Now, we don't like this message in American society because we like to think we're pretty good people and we're on our way to being better. But the truth is, we are all sinners. We're all fatally flawed by sin. I'm a big proponent, by the way, of using here the Ten Commandments to help people understand what sin is. And if you've never had a chance to memorize the Ten Commandments, there's a little nifty mnemonic device, memory device that, that uh, I've used with children, I've used with adults, and I've used it, I'm sure, on a Sunday night here. The first uh, commandment, you hold your finger up towards heaven, only worship one God. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Now, most people fail on that point. Well, everyone I know fails on that point alone. Because we all set up these gods in our hearts if we don't set them up on our shelves and we're worshiping other gods. Uh, uh, commandment number two reminds me of a pair of scissors, right? Cutting something out, cutting out an image. Because the second commandment is don't make idols. Thou shalt not make unto thyself any graven image. Commandment number three reminds me, this only works in English, this was terrible in Mongolian, of the, of the letter W. And W reminds me of my words, because God says, Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. So watch your words. Watch what you say. Now, my guess is if you know unsaved people, and you're around them any length of time, they are taking God's name in vain. Now, again, I grew up in a time, at least area of the country I grew up in, which was in California and Oregon, uh, people didn't swear in public. I mean, they might in a private conversation with someone they knew. But I can walk into a store to get groceries. I can go to a, a, a Home Depot or a Lowe's to, to be buying some uh, lumber, some construction product. And people will just, it just comes out of their mouth. Well, remind your friend that is not a Christian that God will judge us for every word we say, and especially when we take his name in vain. And encourage your children, I, I, I have four of them, so I know, encourage your children not, not only to avoid um, the, the direct misuses of God's name, but even euphemisms, gosh and geez, I just, I don't feel comfortable with that. And I would encourage you to help your children understand the seriousness of God's name. We tell a lot of jokes in my family, you, if you've ever sat at our dinner table, we tell a lot of jokes, but we don't tell jokes about God, because it's really hard to joke about God and not take his name and use it vainly, purposelessly. Anyway, watch your words. Number four, the fourth commandment. This is a little bit harder, but it reminds us that we must honor the Sabbath day. Now, nobody gets saved. Nobody gets saved by keeping the Ten Commandments. So I don't need to quibble with you about exactly which, uh, how we do this, but the fourth commandment is to honor the Sabbath day. And by the way, I believe that setting aside one day a week to focus on honoring the Lord and worshiping him is a, is a good thing. Here's the fifth commandment. I always think of it as a salute. You got five fingers here, you got the salute, and that is honor your father and mother. Now, again, that's another commandment that just about everybody has broken. In fact, everyone I know has broken. 
Maybe you know someone who always honored their father and mother. Honor your father and mother. The sixth commandment, I think if somebody's shooting a bullet at someone else, because the sixth commandment is don't kill, don't murder. Seventh commandment, I think of one person having two spouses, because the answer is don't, the, uh, the commandment is don't commit, a, I don't know what the answer is, but the commandment is don't commit adultery. The eighth commandment, I like to start with four fingers on this hand and four fingers on this hand, bump them together and put three fingers on this hand and five fingers on this hand, because it reminds us don't steal. Don't steal. The ninth commandment, you've got five fingers on this hand, four fingers on this hand. Their stories don't match up because one of them is lying. And the ninth commandment is don't lie. Again, another one that most of us can agree. We, yeah, we've broken that one. The tenth commandment, don't covet. You see, the tenth commandment helps us understand it's not just our actions and our words that condemn us. It's our thoughts and the attitudes of our heart. Because covetousness, you don't have to do anything to covet. It's what you're thinking and what you experience in your heart that is covetousness. So help your unsaved friend as you're preaching the gospel, help them understand what sin is and that we've all sinned. We've all broken God's law. By the way, how many sins does it take to send us to hell? One. Sometimes people think, well, I know what you're saying is right. I've done some bad things, but I've done a lot of good things. You can't make up for the bad things you've done by doing good things. You would never tell a human judge, well, yeah, I was speeding through there and I, I deserve that traffic ticket, but you don't know how many times I've stopped at a stop sign. <laughs> judge is going to say, I don't care. You were speeding. You broke one law. You got to pay for that one law. Well, the, 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 the truth is the Bible tells us the wages of sin is death. So even one sin condemns us to a godless eternity in hell unless we receive the gift of God, which is in Jesus Christ. Okay, so we're going to talk about our sins. Again, we're looking at the gospel here. We want our message to be clear. We're going to talk about sin. The second thing I want you to see in 1 Corinthians 15.3 is that Christ died. Christ died. Christ died for our sins. What, what is the cross? In, in Christian religion, you'll be surprised anymore how many uh, Americans don't have really a good concept, a good understanding of what this cross represents. It's just a symbol to them. Like a Buddhist mandala, if I said to you, what, what, what's the significance of a Buddhist mandala? You'd say, I don't even know what a Buddhist mandala is. If I showed you a picture, oh, that's what that is. You can show people a cross and, oh yeah, that's Christianity. Well, why? What does it mean? It means that Christ died. And by the way, Catholics have a crucifix. They have Christ on the cross. We're not Catholic, and we don't put Christ on the cross because he's risen. So we, but we do have a cross. It reminds us that Christ died for our sins. He didn't faint. He didn't go into a coma. He died for our sins. He was buried. This passage tells us he was buried. His friends, they knew what a dead person was and what a person in a coma was, and they knew he was dead, and they buried him. You remember the uh, Romans, soldiers, they knew how to kill people. They put a spear through his side. Jesus was already dead by that point, but they put a spear through his side, punctured his heart. People don't survive that. Jesus was dead. He was buried. But don't forget he rose again. Don't leave him in the tomb. Sometimes as I'm being a witness, I can forget to remind people that Jesus rose from the dead. That's the good news. 
A lot of people have died. A lot of people were crucified by the Romans. But only one rose from the dead. That's our Savior, Jesus Christ. And that's who we are remembering. Next time you read through the book of Acts, notice how many times a preacher, whether it's Peter or it's Paul, say, Jesus Christ died and rose again. Jesus Christ died and rose again. Sometimes they say, you killed him. Peter says that to the uh, council, the Jewish council. You killed him, but God raised him from the dead. They go together as the gospel. And it's a reminder, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is, is not just a reminder, it proves to us that Jesus has victory over sin and over death. Jesus has victory over sin and over death. So when it comes to this gospel that we preach, our sins, Christ died, Christ was buried, Christ rose again. The message has to be clear if we're going to preach the gospel. Now, let me bring this to a close by giving us some applications here. Let me bring this to a close by giving us some applications here. Who is it? Who is it? I'm going to ask a question. This is not a rhetorical question. I want you to think, and I want someone to just give me an answer. In fact, let's have the kids. Anyone under the age of 12? See if you can give me an answer. Who is it that is supposed to preach Christ? Who is it that is supposed to? Is this verse that we're looking at? First uh, Corinthians one twenty three. We preach Christ. Okay, that's good. Paul's talking about himself. But today we know the Bible tells us who is it that's supposed to preach Christ? Was that a hand up, Hattie? Everybody. Everybody. I like that, Hattie. Everybody. It's not just my job, although it is my job. I, I ought to be preaching Christ. It's not just our Sunday school teachers or just our deacons. I always get a kick out, and this is, hasn't happened to me for a long time. But I always get a kick when someone comes in, why aren't our deacons doing more of this or that from a person who's not doing anything? You, you want to preach Christ? You don't, don't wait for the deacons to preach Christ. You go preach Christ. So how do we do this? Well, let me give you a couple of ways. Uh, it's very common uh, among churches, or was very common among churches, for people to go door to door and knock on people's doors trying to introduce themselves to new people and to get the gospel to them. And as long as I'm a, the pastor here at Elmira Baptist Church, we want to use that method to reach people. And here's why. Because we're told in, in uh, Mark 16, 15, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. We're trying to get the gospel out to as many people as possible. And I've been to a lot of homes where they don't want you there, and so they're just trying to get you off the porch. That's fine. But you'd be surprised how many people will talk to you about the gospel. And you can get them the gospel. We do this every Saturday morning, 10 o'clock. We, we, uh, we, we have a time of prayer ahead of time, so I say we try to get out by 10 o'clock. Uh, you're welcome to join us for that prayer time at 9 or show up at 10 o'clock. And uh, we'll match you up with someone who knows what they're doing. You can go along with that person, lady with a lady, fellow with a fella, and, and watch what they do. I would ask you, if you're planning to come on Saturday morning and you don't normally come, please let me know ahead of time so I can be thinking about the best way to match you match you up with someone that can show you how to do it. It's not hard because, again, we just have to remember, yeah, we're going to let people know we're Christians. <laughs> Let's not hide it. Wouldn't it be neat if every Bible-preaching, gospel-preaching church in the Vacaville, Elmira area sent people out every Saturday? Boy, we just blanket the city. 
people would start saying, I had no idea there were so many Christians in this city. I'm surprised, and some of my other uh, brothers and sisters in Christ that go door knocking with me, I'm surprised how many people will say, oh, I go to this church. I go to that church. It's a Bible preaching church. It's a gospel preaching church. And I have never done this, but one of these times I'm going to say, well, have you gone next door to your neighbor and preached to them? If we would just do this, make it a point to get out and get the gospel out, boy, God would be honored and glorified. So let me encourage you, if you've never done that type of door-to-door, knock on a door, meet someone for the first time in an effort to get them the gospel, let me know that you're going to come out, which Saturday you're going to come out, and, and we're, we're going to do this. In fact, I'm going to be approaching a few of you that I, I, I know can step up to the plate and I'm going to say, hey, would you come out with me? Because oftentimes I'm the one without a partner. And, and that's fine. I'm not complaining, but I could use a partner. So that's one way we do it. Here's another way we're going to do it. We're going to preach Christ. We're going to preach Christ to people that we know. Now, I'm going to, I'm going to pick on Matt, sort of like I picked on KJ this morning. I don't know how many times we've been out door knocking and all of a sudden Matt's disappeared. He's nowhere to be found. And, and he's often with his wife, Sarah, but they're, ne- they're gone. And I don't worry anymore because it usually means they've met someone that they know. Just random neighborhoods, they meet people they know because they've lived here so long. They know a lot of people, especially Matt. You know, often those people that we know are more receptive to the gospel than a total stranger. I I can speak for myself. When somebody comes to my door and they're trying to talk to me, usually means they're trying to sell me a product. And I'll be frank, I don't buy products from people who knock on my door. I don't. I don't buy insurance or cable subscriptions or magazines from people that knock on my door. So I understand why a lot of people in our community, they don't want to talk to us when we knock on their door. They just want to move us on. That's fine. I'm, I'm, I'm fine with that. I don't feel badly about that. So who do you know already that needs to hear the gospel? Could be a family member. Could be a friend. Could be a neighbor. Could be a co-worker. I mentioned this morning on my prayer list, there's a list of people, and I encourage you each to have at least three I mentioned five this morning. Maybe that seems overwhelming. At least three people. You are praying for their salvation. You know what you're going to find is you pray for their salvation. The Holy Spirit's going to say, okay, you go talk to them. Why don't you take a lunchtime at work and talk to them? Why don't you go over to the house on a weekend and talk to them? Why don't you go over to the house on an evening and talk to them? Now, I know what some of you are thinking. Pastor, I, you know, what would I say? Again, I'm willing to go with you. In fact, I'm willing to, I know other people in this, in this uh, uh, church who are willing to go with you to be a witness to your neighbor if you'll introduce us. Now, don't do this. Here's my friend's name and here's their address. Go talk to them. No, 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 no. You come with me and we'll go talk to them. And I'm willing to do the, 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 the gospel presentation. Uh, you know, I want you to introduce me. I, it's sort of awkward. Who is this man? You know, but introduce me. Talk to your friend. We'll make some small talk and we'll give them the gospel. Who is it that you know that needs the gospel in this community? Now, one of the reasons, frankly, that I knock doors is most of the people I deal with on a regular basis are already Christians. It's you guys. You don't need to hear the gospel again and again and again and again. We need to get this gospel out to new people. So I do a lot of door knocking for that reason. But you know people. You might have grown up with people. You might have graduated with people from this area. And you'd say, hey, pastor, let's go talk with so-and-so. Just a few weeks ago, it's a tragic situation. I wish it was not under these circumstances, but there was a young man who died 
uh, out of state. He passed away out of state. But his parents live here in Vacaville. And one of the members of the church said, hey, pastor, my friend's son just died. Would you go with me to their house? I said, only if you'll go with me. He said, yeah, I'll go with you. So we went over there. In fact, we made several visits. We had a chance to give them the gospel. The plan is, uh, in fact, we talked again this morning. The plan is to go over there here in another week or two, give them the gospel again. But let's not wait until somebody dies in their family to give them the gospel. You know people. You know people that need the gospel. In addition to people you know that need the gospel, we have folks that come and visit our church. We've had, I thank you for praying for visitors because we've had a significant number of visitors to our church over the last few months. Now, some of them come once. In fact, one of them came recently. We, we did some follow-up. They said, I don't, we don't like the preaching. Okay, that's fine. They don't have to like my preaching. They don't have to come to our church. I wish they'd get plugged in somewhere, but they don't have to get plugged in here. But praise the Lord, we at least have visitors. Our goal as a church is to follow up personally with each of these visitors. Now, sometimes they just come in and they shoot out the door and they don't leave us any information. How do you follow up? Okay, I understand. I, I, don't, I'm, I don't need to be over, overwhelmed by it. But especially where they'll leave us a card with their phone number or their address, we follow up, we call. If they leave me their address, I send them a a letter. Or if they leave me an email address, I send them an email. And then we try to go by and we visit them. And again, I need help with that. Some of you are helping me. I don't want you to feel burdened that I need more help. I want to include more people. It's a blessing. And often those people who visit us, number one, they're either already a Christian and they're looking for a church. Or they're seeking God, and those are the, those are the ones that giving them a gospel is a joy. They're, it's like they're, they're waiting. It's like they've come to the restaurant, and they're standing at the window to order. They want food. They want help. And we have it. We preach Christ. We don't want them to move on to the Mormon steakhouse, do we? By the way, steakhouse is their word for their building, okay? It's not a steak, S-T-E-A-K, okay? First time someone's at a Mormon steakhouse, I said, well, of course you go to a steakhouse for food. No, 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 no. We don't want them to move on to the JWs, do we? As we were traveling recently, I, I noticed several of the places, several of the rest areas where we stopped at, they had some people sitting there next to a display, and on the display they had JW.org and, and literature. Jehovah Witnesses will find a way to get to them if we don't. We visit those people on Thursday nights. Now, Frankly, um, I'm going to blame everything on the pandemic. Pandemic, But we, we, we can do a better job. We, me, I include myself, I include all of us, we can do a better job of following up on these people. I need your help. If you'd be willing to go out with me on a Thursday night, 7 o'clock in the evening, I can meet you here at the church, or we can meet closer to the person we're visiting, depending on who the visit is and where you live. We can meet. I'll go with you. You can Find, uh, not find, you can learn the way to just be friendly and let people know we love them. We're glad they visited our church. Tell me how you became a Christian. And that opens the door for the gospel. Now, it's very rare in those visits that they don't, in fact, nine times out of 10, I would guess, they actually let you into their house. Sometimes they even offer you food to eat. Billy, they offer you food to eat. (laughs) You can get something to drink. It's, it's a good, it's a positive, my point is it's a positive experience. If you're interested in going with me on Thursday nights, I want to take somebody with me. I, I have people I can take 
But the, I don't want to just keep taking the same people. I want to take new people and help you grow in your ability to talk to people about the gospel. So tonight's homework. All right. This morning's homework was? Yeah. Talk to someone who's either 30 years older or 30 years younger. Ask them for a prayer request and give them your prayer request. That was this morning's homework. See, some of you have already forgotten. You are great high school students. Man, forget your homework in the blink of an eye. Here's tonight's homework. Pray. Ask the Lord what he wants you to do about preaching the gospel. If you need some training, if you need some help, I'm going to say sign up, but I'm, I'm speaking figuratively here. Come talk to me. Sign up. Say, hey, pastor, I'll go out with you on Saturday mornings or I'll go out with you on Thursday nights. And if I have too many people for me to, to, to train, I've got other folks that I can send you with to train you. I've got a list. I was looking at it today. I've got a list of more than a dozen visitors who visited recently, and we've made one reach out to them. It's time to make a second reach out to them. We had visitors this morning that came for the first time that we're going to make a reach out to. They left us a card, and, and we're going to reach out to them. So there's plenty of visits to make. In addition, and we're not preaching about this tonight, but there are some shut-ins of our church that need a visit. Now, some of you are already doing a great job of visiting them, and I'm not here to put more burden on you, but more of us could get out and visit shut-ins. Can you imagine being at a point in your life where your health doesn't allow you to leave the house? And then nobody from your church ever comes by. Now, a call's nice. Call is nice. I, some of you call people, and I'm, I, thank you, keep calling. Wouldn't it be nice if we could visit some of these shut-ins? You will find most of the time you come away more encouraged. You go to encourage them, but you come away encouraged by their faith, by their perseverance in their faith in difficult circumstances. So three kinds of visits. One is we're going to knock on some people's doors, or four actually. We're going to knock on some people's doors. We don't know these people. The second type of visit is people you know that we can go and visit and preach the gospel. The third type of visit is people that have visited our church. They've been a guest here. Now we want to follow up with them. And the fourth type of visit is visiting shut-ins of our church. What kind of visit could you make? Either with me or if you are, are, are comfortable, what kind of visit could you make by yourself or with your spouse or with a friend from the church here? We could do, we could do Elmira Baptist Church could do a better job of preaching Christ. Father, thank you for uh, the faithfulness of these folks to be out on a Sunday night. And it's the uh, football season, and I'm sure there are people home tonight watching a football game rather than joining us. And uh, Lord, you work on their hearts. I ask you to bless these that have come tonight to be a part of this worship time, a part of remembering the Lord's Supper. My prayer tonight is that you burden my heart to do a better job of preaching the gospel personally. That you would give me, you would renew my vision and refresh my vision to train Elmira Baptist Church to preach the gospel. Bring people to mind that need to hear the gospel. Lay it on our hearts, the hearts of my sisters and my brothers, to be intentional about sharing the gospel at work to be intentional about sharing the gospel with neighbors, to be intentional about sharing the gospel with friends and family members. Lay it on, on our hearts to follow up with our visitors, with our guests, and to share the gospel with them or to encourage them in the Lord. And even lay it on our hearts, Lord, to be bold and to go door to door, to knock on new people's doors, introduce ourselves, tell them what church we're from, 
and then seek to share the gospel with them. Lord, I want Elmira Baptist Church to be a lighthouse. Uh, Keep us from being ashamed of the gospel. Give us a boldness to preach the gospel, we pray. Now, Lord, as we transition to a time of remembering your son's death, burial, and resurrection for us, prepare our hearts. We ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ, your son. Amen.